we should probably get started. Yeah, I was going to say, do y'all have an intro or have we just been contributing to this podcast? Welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. No mas pantalones. So you, you really went with that? Yeah, okay. I really did. Okay. <laughs> I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we have special guest Rob Hilferdy from World Build With Us. <laughs> Back for another visit. Welcome. Hello, welcome. gentlemen. Always a pleasure to be on here with you. Yeah, I'm just embracing the chaos today. So yeah, that that quote felt right. Well, we're all embracing the chaos today. But oh, yeah. We have only the loosest idea of what we're going to be talking about today. And uh, mm. hopefully it all <laughs> turns out for the best. But you know what? Considering the topic we decided to tackle, this really fits perfectly. Because if we're going to go ahead and go in with our topic, this is the mindset you kind of need to start with. I actually completely agree with you there, yeah. Except with a single caveat in which, actually, I'm going to steal this from you. Today's topic, as I understand it, as the napkin that I received as an invitation (laughs) to the podcast would suggest, we're talking about world building today. Yes. Is that correct? We are indeed talking about world building. And now, before we get too, too far into this, Rob, why don't you introduce yourself in case we have listeners who haven't heard you on the show before to see why we invited you on to talk about world building. First of all, that's impossible. I was already on episode 100 with y'all, so everyone (laughs) should know me at this point. But if you don't, my name is Rob Hilferty. I am one of the co-creators and co-hosts of World Build With Us, a podcast where we create fantastical worlds with prompts from our listeners. We also do interviews. And Ian has been on our show a couple of times for like a guest host spot. All of those episodes are phenomenal. So if you want to come check out our podcast, I would recommend you search for World Build With Us, or you can go to our website, worldbuildwithus.com where we've got all that good stuff. We also just started doing a YouTube channel. So if that's the easiest way for you to go on there, you can go to YouTube and type up world build with us. And I'm sure that you'll find something related to us somewhere within the search bar. So that's where I would recommend finding us first and foremost. Good deal. And you guys just recently celebrated episode 200. Absolutely. Yeah. So congratulations on that. Uh, yeah, we've been at this for almost four years now. Wow. And, uh, you know, for a while, it really felt like a one man band type situation. But recently, I've been going back to or I, I started a master's program. And my co hosts have really picked it up. And I feel so supported and loved. Like I missed an episode for the first time in four years, we've put out an episode <laughs> every week, and I missed one and it felt awful. But <laughs> But I also felt so supported because I knew and I trusted my co-host to absolutely knock it out of the park. And of course they did. So it is really uh, weird. Like when you switch up that recording schedule, mm-hmm. and you have that week where you have that free week, either you've pre-planned it or whatever. And it's like, there's something I should be doing. <laughs> yeah. What did I oh, forget? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that because we pre-record some of our episodes, I'm able to go on like vacation and stuff like that. You know, like I spent a month away from 
the thing and you know we had a backlog built up so that i think is easier for me just because it's like oh you know i recorded three times this week and so i know that i'm good for a couple of weeks to go but yeah no that feeling of when you stop it's like oh man i feel like i you know it's like you know that you're doing something wrong and you haven't been caught yet so yeah i definitely understand that yeah all right so let's go ahead and get started yeah, uh, I was going to say, in the beginning, the world was shapeless and void. We've, we've already started, Ian, you fool. We've, <laughs> we've been on this without you. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> so if we're going to get into this, right? I love world building. World building is obviously something that I enjoy, that I think enriches worlds, enriches narratives in a way that I think is really important. And oftentimes, so I'm going to do a couple of things. First of all, I always start with a central premise, right? What excites you about the world? What excites you about the story that you're trying to tell here, right? That's where you have to start because all great stories start that way. Oh, I want to tell a story about people who ride and tame dragons. Cool. No problem. What does that world look like? Start from there. Start with the central premise. This is what a friend of the show and yours, actually, one C.R. Rowenson, Clark Rowenson would say is the seed crystal. And so shout out to C.R. Rowenson. Go check out his book on magic systems. If you haven't already, it's really, really good. He's also known as the magic engineer on YouTube. But that is where I would start. Start with an idea. And you have to figure out what is your world building servicing, right? Are you writing a novel? That's completely different if you are building a world for running a role-playing game, right? From my experience and because of the podcast that I'm on, I'm probably going to start by talking about what it means to world build from a role-playing game perspective first, unless you guys want to chime in here and fight me on this. No, no, that's... We are TTRBG, so I mean, that's what we do. I kind of assumed, but you know, like, (laughs) I don't know, man, you know? Especially when it comes to role-playing games. As I'm the GM 95 plus percent of the time when I'm playing, what I always love to do is I create investment with my players immediately by getting them involved with the world building process, right? Session zero should be mandatory unless you're doing a one shot, right? Yeah. If you're not doing a one shot, investment and engagement starts with session zero. The way that I typically do it I start with a premise, like this is my pitch. This is the world that I'm trying to build. And this is the story that I'm interested in telling. So I start there and I give them three pillars of the game that I'm interested in talking about, right? And pillars are what you should expect from a week to week basis playing in this game. They should be evocative. They should be illustrative of the game you're trying to play, right? So once I have that, my players are like, cool, When session zero starts, I'm like, here are the tenets. These are things that are true about the world that we're going to build. And I start like I normally do like two. But then what I would ask is my players all share something that's true about the world. And we go in a fun little circle or maybe not a circle, but, you know, it's all good. But that's how I start. Right. Tell me something that's true about this world, because what you're doing when you do that, you've already expressed what you want to talk about, what you want to do by the pitch, by the concept. And then what you're doing when you add in the players is you hear what they're interested in talking about. You hear what they're interested in doing, what they're engaging with. And all of a sudden, if you have a player who's like, hey, 
I want, you know, like baronies to be a thing and I want there to be like a nobility and I want to be part of that, right? You're hearing that, oh, these people want nobility. They want a, a role-playing game side, right? And now all of a sudden, when the baronies come up, that player is like, oh, I added this. I did this to the world. And they're engaged. They're invested. And it's on them. And you should be creative and flexible enough to absorb all of these ideas and create a fleshed out world. And obviously, it's not like you're going to go through these tenets that people want to add and then everything's good. No. There has to be a process to it where you're like, okay, what questions do we have? Once the tenets are out there, then you start shaping the world. That's where it starts. And that's where I'm going to start. I want to hear what you guys have to say in here because, man, oh, I need some water after all that. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I start my whole process when it comes to world building. I like this process that you come up with, and it feels correct. I think a lot of people, when they first attempt to world build, and I know this is a problem I had initially, is you try to, instead of bringing a framework and for your people to kind of flesh out and work around, you bring a complete novel. And then it doesn't allow any wiggle room for your right. players to really interact. And if they do something completely unexpected, as every party is going to do, it makes it so much harder for you to kind of shoehorn that into what you already had planned. The fact that it's the player's story and the DM is the narrator is a lesson that needs to be learned mm -hmm. for new DMs. And that can be a tricky one at first. Mm -hmm. I do want to emphasize, though, there is a need for a collaborative process. People in RPGs especially tend to forget that the DM is a player, too. They're there yeah. to have fun. That's where the central premise and their tenets come in. We're building this collaboratively, right? That's what I'd like to emphasize as well. Yes, but you also have to, if you are the DM, you have to come into it with the mindset that this isn't my world. This is oh, yeah. our world. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And that is something that a lot of beginning DMs and GMs, myself included, that's a big pitfall that a lot of us fall into. I showed up and said, here is the world that we are going to play in. Right. I mean, and, and, and then it becomes less of a role playing game and more almost like an interactive novel because the story becomes so rigid that it doesn't really have the variance. And so as the GM, because you are so invested in this world, you keep directing the story to follow your world rather than altering the world to follow your story. Absolutely. Yeah. You were with us for one of our anniversary episodes, Robs, and I don't know if this is something you had brought up before or if it was just flow of the mind at the time, but you brought up this phrase that the game is a shared dream. Mm -hmm. And that so perfectly describes the tabletop gaming experience mm. that like I grabbed onto that. So and I use it all the time now because that is the perfect description of it. Yeah, I mean, it's something that you feel, right? And it's something that is entirely unique to the group that you're playing with. It is something that others cannot truly understand and truly feel. It makes it incredibly difficult to study role-playing games in a lot of ways. And I know this because that's kind of what my master's project is right now. But at the same time, it is something so ephemeral and magical in that moment. And I would argue that when you collaboratively world build, you're evoking some of that same dreamlike quality, that same kind of magic that you feel in doing so. In collaborative world building, you're feeling that draw that is the magic, the shared dream that you want. And yeah, I completely agree with you on that one, mostly because I said it, but still. <laughs> <laughs> 
so the other question that I had for us to discuss a little bit mm. in the lead up was what are some of the things that especially people who are first starting out first really getting their teeth into a world building project what are some of the things that they tend to add into their world building project that they really don't need to invest that much energy oh, in doing? That's a great question. And it's so easy to get bogged down. So if you're coming at this as a writer, you want to make sure that your world feels lived in and that it has days in a unique calendar system. And oftentimes I feel like those are pit traps, right? Because we had Rich Baker on as a guest one time, and one of the like most simple pieces of advice that he gave that is incredibly wise and prescient is, you do not need a world. The world is as big as what the players are looking at and experiencing, right? He likened it to a stage play, when in reality, all you really need is like the dressing of the scene, right? And you can kind of build from there. So I think as long as what you're creating is evocative and interesting and rich. You do not need to know what, and Tolkien would probably be arguing again. <laughs> you don't need detailed maps. You don't need detailed language systems. I think what you need to focus on is what is interesting about this world and what are the implications of the world that you're engaging with? So for example, if you're in a world where magic suddenly appears what does that mean? Because the world has shifted tremendously. I tend to look at it in three layers, right? There's the world layer. What does it mean for the world layer? And then you zoom down just a little bit. What does it mean for this country? And then you zoom down even further. What does it mean for this person, right? So with the sudden onset of magic, okay, magic is now suddenly a thing. Well, that means that you're able to cast spells. And as a result, you're completely revitalizing and revolutionizing how labor works. Because if you're able to suddenly cast Ant Hall, which is an old D&D 3.5 or Pathfinder spell, <laughs> and one person is now able to lift the load of 20, well, now it's going to behoove these capitalists, these factory owners, to have a sorcerer in employ just cast Ant Hall on people. And now all of a sudden you've multiplied your force tremendously, right? Right. So bam, now we've gone down from, okay, that's world level, that's country level. And then you start thinking, okay, how does this, what is the implication here? Well, now all of a sudden somebody's out of work. And now all of a sudden somebody is starting to be desperate to feed their family. And so what does that look like all of a sudden, just because you followed the implication just a little bit, look at it big, smaller, smallest, individualize it, right? And that's where you're going to start getting the really interesting stuff from world building. When the characters can start interacting with it and can start seeing like, oh, this is what happened to my character when the world suddenly changed, right? So you want to make sure that you're hitting all three of those levels to make sure that the world building is consistent and interesting for those three levels. And that fits. And that kind of goes along with the theme too, or the idea that if you are world building correctly, you don't have to build every aspect of the world. You'll have different aspects. But again, if you consider those three levels, you know, world, nation, individuals, those individuals are going to have their separate actions, but that's going to link up to the mm -hmm. nation or the local government, which will link up to a world. And those separate mm -hmm. elements, if you let your players have some, I always blank on this word I want to use, but some authority or some interaction, 
agency. Yeah, agency. There we go. Yeah, yeah. I'll have your players have some agency. It will naturally link and start to build itself. Right. And that's what happens when you start creating a world that feels interconnected, when there is a sense of verisimilitude, you know, where it's like, oh man, that's when I start feeling invested in the world. When things start to make sense, when things start to feel connected and feel like I have agency over the world. And especially in role-playing games, right? I think that there is not enough emphasis on when players do things there should be consequences. And I mean that for good and for ill. When players do things, the GM should spend some time to be like, oh, damn, you know that dragon that you killed? Now, all of a sudden, X, Y, and Z happens, right? Like, now that's kind of freed up some trade, and now there's... Show the implication of the world. Show that it's a living world, and show that what you do in it matters, right? Absolutely. But World building overall, that's more just like a good GM tip, I think, overall. Yeah. But I think that to the grander point, it does connect overall. Well, I was just going to build onto that because, you know, if you're killing this dragon, yes, you're going to be potentially making it a safer location and allowing more trade to happen and all of that. But you're also creating a power vacuum mm-hmm. yes. because you had this very powerful entity that was in control of this territory. And so Mm. now there's nothing there and something is going to come in and fill that void. Right. Or on the other hand, right? Like think about it this way. Oh, there's been an army that's been on the borderline for ages. And the only thing that's held them off from crossing into this territory is the dragon, right? So now they're going to be able to march through that dragonless territory in order for them to get to their true goal. And now all of a sudden the players are like, well, shit, we're kind of responsible for that, aren't we? Yeah. You know, it's stuff like that that makes it like really living and breathing and stuff like that. So, so I mean, you guys did that both. You guys hit like a local government level. You hit a world level. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back down to hit kind of that personal level too Mm. one thing that DD kind of lacks particularly fifth edition that fallout really handled really well and most of their versions is that karma level so if your Mm. party is a bunch of murder hobos and they're going through and they walk into town Mm -hmm. you should have that reputation and people are going to be kind of wary because they're going to have heard of you before they've met you likewise if you are serving a local government or a crown or you're generally helping people you're going to be more of that local hero so they're Mm -hmm. going to be happier to see your party members and so that personal reputation should affect and reflect on your character Right. And I think what's important when we look at this from a world building perspective, if you're looking at these three layers, right, you're able to start extremely small or extremely broad. I think that James, you suggesting that starting loose being very important. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because if you want to start small, if you want to start in a very traditional role-playing game style and, you know, like you're very focused on just the village of Hamlet, right? And then you want to expand upon that, you can absolutely do that. Or you can start incredibly broad in terms of, well, I want a sci-fi world, right? I want a sci-fi world and I want these elements in it. And then you have to take that and you have to dig down a little bit just to kind of get there, right? And I think that as long as you're able to stay loose and as long as you're driven by something that you find really interesting and as long as you're able to understand what makes it interesting by interrogating those three levels. And there's probably more, there's probably like a fourth level that I'm not really taking into account, but for all intents and purposes here, rule of threes, let's just do it that way. Right. Right. I mean, if you wanted to throw a fourth level in there, I would probably put like a local or a community level between nation and individual. That's where I would subdivide it if we wanted to put another one in. But yeah, I mean, I think that going world, nation, individual works. 
That works. Yeah. I'd also consider like a deity level as well. So if you're dealing with the divine in any way. Um, especially if you're going to be going off world, if your setting is mm. something like Planescape or Spelljammer where you have multiple worlds, then you would probably want a broader beyond the world view as well, because then you're going to be figuring out how this planet interacts with other planets around it. Right. Oh, yeah. See, when I mean the world, you know, that also encompasses multi-worlds, right? Or different planes of existence, right? Because ultimately what you want to focus on is how does the thing, the tenet that you're creating, the thing that you're interested in introducing, how does it affect it on a world stage, right? So for example, if we're kind of taking it this way, if you want to introduce multiple gods, for example, or let's stick to the sci-fi thing, right? James, give me a tenet that would apply to a sci-fi world. So I'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna bang this out real quick, right? Okay. Um the central premise that I have is we're making a space opera with multiple systems, right? Give me something that you'd want to engage in within this world itself. First contact. Okay. What does that mean to you? So it'll be literally the first contact between either your host species or between two different, but it'll be the first meeting, the first okay. interaction between two species or groups. So the tenet that you're creating is we are in a world that is only just creating first contact with an alien species. Is yes. that correct? correct? Okay, cool. So now we have that concept. We have this world is the first contact. And this is where you have to ask questions, right? This is where you have to like dig a little bit deeper to get to the implications, to get to those more personal layers. So does this necessarily mean that just because we're first contacting an alien species, does it mean that we are still terrestrial or does this mean that we have like a star spanning solar empire, right? Like that's a follow-up question that you'd want to ask because that's not inherently true based on the tenet that you have. So I'm going to go to Ian. Ian, give me another tenet that may or may not be related to James's tenet. Okay. The second tenet that I'm going to give is that there is no faster than light travel. Ooh. Great. Yeah. Okay. So this is really interesting now because to me, the interesting thing about this is, okay, we are still very much beholden to time. So the suggestion of no faster than light travel suggests that we're not in our solar system anymore, right? Because that would mean that, or, you know, this might not be earth at all. So there lies another question that we would then need to answer. So James, go ahead and hit me with another tenet. What's your second tenet that you'd like to explore within this particular world that we're suddenly building? Cybernetics is pervasive. Fantastic. And all of a sudden we have a technology level that is there and evident and the implication is, oh, so much, like we can get into so much of that, right? And then for the sake of brevity here, Ian, what would your second tenet be for this world? Okay. Um, see here. I didn't have as much time to think about it this time. Uh, <laughs> okay. This is all yeah. off the cuff, man. But okay. this, is what, this is how easy it can be is what I'm suggesting here, right? Uh, spacecraft are piloted by artificial intelligence. Bam. There we go. Okay. So we've got a world where we have cybernetics. We have first contact just occurred. And so with that second tenet that Ian kind of introduced, there is now an assumption that the AI pilot is the first thing that made contact with the aliens, right? Because they're the scouts on the edge of this empire. They're the ones who are reaching out into the edges of the solar system. So that's a fairly easy thing that you can kind of make an assumption about, right? Is that right. 
the first contact is not with human beings, but with an AI. So, oh, what are the implications there? You know, like, what does that look like? What? So, so one of you tell me, what's the implications involved with AI being the first contacted folks? Well, because it is an AI, whether it is the invading forces ship that has AI or the local forces ship that has AI or even both, what you end up with is you are going to have an interaction that is going to be heavily based on logic as opposed to emotion. So you're going to end up having a lot more opportunity for discourse and or threat assessment Mm -hmm. rather than having a shoot first, ask questions later response. Sure. And what we've done now, you've already suggested that there's a conflict when, you know, that wasn't there already. And that's what I love is that all of a sudden you start creating these ideas. You're like, well, you start answering the questions there. And what does that mean? Oh man. Okay. There's probably conflict then. Right. And oh, if there is a conflict, it's more logic based. It's less about feelings and stuff like that. Now let's pull that back just a little bit. Let's rope in another tenant. Let's bring in James's idea. Okay. We've got cybernetics being prevalent. So if we want to take in cybernetics and you want to talk about uncaring, unfeeling, all of a sudden you can tie those together and those AIs are probably piloted or at least semi-controlled by heavily cybernetic people, right? So now there's another layer and what you're adding is a personal layer to that. So now what I'm expecting is there are people who are on the edges of our solar empire in this particular thing who uh, they need to be more cybernetic to one, survive, and two, to explore these reaches without being incredibly lonely, right? So now all of a sudden we're creating worlds, we're creating implications. We had a basic premise, a very basic premise. And by creating four tenets and by kind of talking about them and answering those questions by interrogating those things, all of a sudden we're getting a feeling and all of a sudden we're creating a world. And frankly, that is all you need to start, right? You are a crew of cybernetic people who are on the edges of an empire and first contact was just made. That is an RPG. If I've ever heard one and all (laughs) of a sudden, Oh man, people are way more engaged, way more interested in playing that game because they brought it to that. And now, James, my guess, you're going to probably want to play someone who is a cyborg of some kind, because that to me is an indication that I'm interested in exploring what it means to be a cybernetic person, right? Yeah. yeah. There we go. Absolutely. And Ian, because you're bringing in something that is, oh, well, I don't want faster than light travel. I don't want it to be a Star Wars-esque type situation. You want it to be grounded in reality just a little bit. That's what that tenet says to me. Am I mostly on the, yeah. So that's what I'm suggesting here, right? You create a setting and a feeling and a narrative just by listening to your players, by listening to your collaborators, all of a sudden you see a direction to take this game. And I don't know about y'all, but I'm like, yeah, let's play Cyborgs on Outpost 39, you know, during First Contact. That sounds dope. That sounds super interesting. It does. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I, I'd roll. Yeah, absolutely. And then from there, that's all you need to start. Then once you're starting there, then you get time. And again, this is explicitly RPGs because if you're an author, this is very, very different. But as a GM, 
You let the story happen organically. You let the world be created organically by you and the players. And you are truly, and this is why this rule has become so prominent in indie RPG spaces, but you play to find out what happens, right? Yeah. You create to find out what happens. It's kind of like George R.R. R. Martin also talks about this where, and this is not just him, but it's common where, you know, you'll sit down and start writing and then all of a sudden your characters will surprise you. And this isn't from an author's perspective, right? And you're like, oh, I didn't even realize that this is what was going to happen. And this completely changes the trajectory of my story. But as long as you're able to stay loose with it and follow that and be okay with that, bam, investment, engagement, stuff that you really, really want to pull out of players. And that is why this method and why organic world building is so important to really flesh out interesting worlds. And that's another place where solo journaling RPGs can really help you develop those muscles. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, one of the games that I played recently was Anamnesis by Sam Lee. We had her on a while back. Mm -hmm. And the prompt that I had at the beginning, I had a very clear picture in my head of the way that the story was going to progress from Mm -hmm. this prompt. And then as I started flipping cards and I realized what my character was actually doing in response to those cards, I realized that, no, this whole thing has shifted in a completely different direction. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be a much different story than what I had intended at the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah, that is something that I think is really important. What I like to highlight in this is in fact your mindset, your commitment to the game was to see what happens and to figure out what happens. It's not like you're like, well, I want this to happen. I've come to a foregone conclusion about what the narrative should look like. No, you're like, no, let's see what happens. Oh, wait, this is completely different because all of a sudden I'm seeing it differently. As long as you're opening yourself up to that, that's perfect. That's what you want to do, man. Yeah, Yeah. and I agree. And you said this doesn't really count with writing as more for RPGs. But as you stated with George R.R. Martin, the other author I know that really did this was Tom Harris. He wrote Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal. He talked about the same when he wrote Hannibal that he let his characters go and he wasn't expecting the book Mm -hmm. to go the direction it did while he was writing it. But that very much does make the story more compelling because you can have foreshadowing and stuff like that, but the book's not predictable. The story's not predictable. Mm -hmm. And so you are more likely to be engaged and caught by surprise by things because as an author, if you're not fully aware of what's going to happen, neither will your readers be. Exactly. Right. And it feels so much less shoehorned when, oh, well, this just feels like a deus ex machina. This doesn't feel like what the character would actually do. If you follow what the characters are actually going to do and, you know, sub in character for player or player character, you know, like that's basically the same thing, right? Like it feels more organic, feels more interesting by doing it that way for sure. Right. Yeah. Another thing that I would really, you know, because we're talking about authorship here, right? And if you find yourself feeling constricted, you're like, oh, I don't know if I can really engage that way. I don't know if I can really let go of the narrative that I have in my head. What I would suggest to people like that is embrace chaos. Chaos. Woohoo. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to do something like that, I would honestly just start with a half story or a half created skeleton. And what I mean by this is one of my favorite games that I've played recently. I ran a modified version of City of Mists because I've always been enamored by the game Houses of the Blooded. 
right? By John Wick. Not that one. Uh, (laughs) So it is a game where you play the nobility of this ancient house, right? And it's not about, I'm going to go fight dragons. I'm not going to go and fight in wars. I'm not going to go fight the bandits. No, you have adventurers and soldiers to do that. What your job is, is to make sure that your house's reputation is maintained. Your job is to ensure that you have a financially profitable like arrangement with the people and organizations around you. Your job is to make sure that your house and the areas that it's in charge of is safe. And obviously you want to throw in some complications like, hey, I want to go bang my rival's wife, for example. You know, like <laughs> you know, have an affair and have these big emotions, right? Love that concept. So I decided to run a game like this, right? And I didn't know what the house looked like. I didn't know what the nobility looked like. And I did that deliberately because I wanted the people to come down and we're going to roll some dice And this is what the lands, and I chose an arbitrary spot on a map. And I said, this is where your house is located. And I did it on a hex map. Everyone's going to roll a die that has random terrain on it. And you're going to tell me something about one of the adjacent hexes. And what happened just through sheer luck of the dice is somehow we ended up being surrounded half of it by swamp right? Which is just like, okay, this is not what I expected at all. And they embraced that. My players were like, wait, we're like surrounded by swamp. So we're probably like poisoners, right? Like we're probably some weirdo backwoods people. And we have a bad reputation for being poisoners because of all the stuff that is native to our swamp. And from there, their noble house was created, right? May we bloom eternal was suddenly their house because they had a flower that represented their house. And that flower was extremely poisonous. And all of a sudden they had a bad reputation with the King because the previous King had died due to sudden poisoning. And was it their fault? Hey, that's what we're going to find out in the game. But if I had told them you're part of the lands and they look like this and they're that, then they wouldn't have been nearly as engaged. And I wouldn't have been so shocked to see what happened and how it literally bloomed organically. And from that, like once they had an idea of what their lands looked like and who they were as people, they suddenly felt like they could see themselves better than if I had just given them some kind of pre-made setting. No, I love that. And stop me if you think I'm wrong, but a great way for someone to exercise prompts like that or kind of like using those prompts for word building, look at something like Mad Libs where you have Mm -hmm. generally like the rough framework of a story, but there's so much stuff for the person to fill in, whether they know what it is or not, you know, hey, give me a noun, give me an adverb, whatever that is, Mm -hmm. you know, and it can change what that story is or how it turns just by what the other person inputs. And for me, world building really should be very much like a Mad Lib because it does make it so much more flexible. Sure. I mean, what we do when we role play, as much as I believe that it's also collective dreaming, we're also playing pretend with each other, right? We're <laughs> creating, like, if you want to break it down to a very reductivist standpoint, that's effectively what we're doing, right? We're doing a lot more than that, but on another level, we're doing something that is so innate to human nature. Like children play pretend all the time because they want to tell stories because they want to make sense of the world around them. 
That's what world building is. That's what, when we sit down at a table to play a game with one another, we're trying to figure out what stories we want to explore and what stories we want to tell each other. And that's what world building is too. How do we express that through world building? Well, God, there's so many ways that we can do that, right? (laughs) I mean, let's take some of the Ur examples, right? Let's look at Narnia. What are they trying to say about the world? Well, it may or may not have a Christian message to it somewhere in there, right? But that's still something that they want to explore by engaging. Or if you want to talk about, and I know, God, I know that Tolkien hated allegory, but you cannot help but look at the stories of Lord of the Rings and not see allegorical worlds and peoples that are happening within there. And even if they are, by pure happenstance, they're still evocative of the themes of the day of Tolkien. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So even if you're mostly interested, you're like, ah, I don't really care about politics. I don't really want to explore that idea. Cool. No problem. You're still going to be fighting an evil baron. You're still going to be fighting an evil necromancer. You're still going to be fighting a dragon, right? Even if it's bare bones, basic nonsense, those things have implications. Those narrative archetypes and hooks still exist. And if you're not engaged, well, your other players might be, your GM might be, and they might hang on to something that you said. And all of a sudden that dragon, guess what? That's now a stand-in for, I mean, let's be real. Dragons just stand in for for massive capitalists at this point or massive privileged folks at this point. So that's an easy thing to do, right? You, You get to explore the implications of what you may or may not be interested in on a very basic level, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's Joseph Campbell. He was a psychiatrist and he has like the archetypes and allegories and stuff like that. And I mean, if you have the time and you want to delve into that kind of things, his work and he has films and books Mm. can be absolutely fascinating because he says that there are basically I think it was 12 basic stories that all of humankind tells and repeats. And it's just these plug and play stand ins. Yeah, he's he's kind of interesting guy, too. I think that at one point he's kind of like a Nazi sympathizer. Oh, I was Uh, unaware. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. But yeah, there is the hero's journey, which is another thing. And then he also draws on the hero of a thousand faces as well. There are those archetypes. He's very much a Jungian archetypal type guy. And I have my issues with Jung and I have my, I think that, okay, this is not going to turn into an English degree (laughs) podcast, I swear. So I'm going to move on from that conversation. Fair enough. But (laughs) look at those things and explore them to your heart's content. That's what I'll say about that. Right. All right. So we did a little exercise and we created the bare bones of a sci-fi world that Mm -hmm. we could play in. I would like to take a minute and try to do a snapshot of this Mm -hmm. setting that we have created. The snapshot of where this game is going to begin, because Mm -hmm. we, we have established that it is a first contact, but we haven't really established anything else surrounding it. Correct. So I would like to try and establish sort of a here is where the party begins. This is where the scene opens. Sure. Opening credits are rolling and we watching our characters in the opening scene before the first ping on the computer. Ian, that's phenomenal. I love that idea. I would love to shamelessly shill for my own podcast, if you don't mind. (laughs) Go Uh, ahead. So normally in my podcast, when we have what are called world building jams, which is effectively what we're doing now, right? Yeah. We have these random tables that we roll on to help kind of 
get the juices flowing a little bit. And where I think we're at right now is what's the theme of the current prompt that we're looking into right now, right? Yeah. And I have 20 different themes that are fairly vague, but are still interesting. And if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind rolling some dice to figure out what the theme that we're focusing on is going to be. Yeah, sure. We can knock that out. Yeah. Great. All right. So the theme, I have a D20 here and I have a list. If you want to hear more of what this list is consistent of, go listen to my podcast, World Build With Us, where we do this pretty frequently. And Ian was actually on one of our world building jam sessions not too long ago. So the theme that we're dealing with, I'm going to roll my D20. And what we've got is, so our theme is rot and decay. So we've got this first contact world. We've got the edges of a solar empire. Our theme is rot and decay. And normally I would do the thing that we're focusing on, right? That is a table that we have. However, I think that we've already chosen that, which is an historic event is occurring, which is first contact, right? Absolutely. Now, what does the theme of rot and decay suggest? Is this an empire that is rotting from the inside and it's desperate to explore the outer reaches because it's run out of resources and it's starting to rot from the inside? So the only way that it can continue to expand if it finds another alien species are these imperialists as we're talking about or is it something completely different themes help us focus rot and decay ian what do you have to say about that so the image that i'm getting is that this empire has overextended itself we're talking like Mm. late roman empire overextension where Mm -hmm. they just simply don't have the manpower to keep pushing, but they have set up in such a way that they have to keep pushing in order to maintain the status quo at home. And so what I'm thinking is maybe we're at like a mining facility or a research facility Mm. on the far edge of this solar system and the communication and supply chain out to this is starting to break down. And so Mm. they're increasingly becoming more independent out of necessity. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Big fan of that. So there's a breakdown again. That's that rotten decay type thing where it's just like, yeah, of course the edges are where it's going to start feeling it first. Right. So James, why don't you come in here? What do you feel when you hear rotten decay? And we're going to build on Ian's kind of, Premise. No, because what I was thinking, Ian kind of butts up perfectly with mine. So have you ever been like way back when, when we all used to have like the AM FM radios in the car and you were kind <laughs> of in between the signal stations? Yeah. So maybe that's how first contact happens because it's all, we said cybernetics are prevalent. Mm-hmm. The ships and stuff are piloted by AI. So maybe that communications or whatever is being washed out and maybe their signal is a bit stronger. So it's interrupting and washing out. And so you have that cultural clash Mm. and that first contact is these communications from the other species overriding or overpowering whatever base communication from cybernetics from the miners. Okay. So those AI, you know, kind of scout drones and pilots, they are getting knocked out. And so that's where the need for cybernetic people are coming in is what I'm hearing. Right. So that's why, oh, it's not just about the AI anymore. It's like, no, we need cybernetic people there or we need people there to make first contact because our drones kept getting knocked out based on this frequency that's happening. Is that that, or I'm thinking that like 
you know, you'd have basically like your news broadcast, your propaganda, your whatever that mm-hmm. would be blasting out. You're so far out that you're on the edges, so it's intermittent. And now whatever new orders or whatever mm-hmm. kind of system information from the new species is starting to overwash that because they are mm-hmm. kind of on that edge. So they have a, a little bit stronger broadcast signal. Like I it, love that. Yeah. Like it, it might be complete coincidence, but they are broadcasting on the same frequency. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you're getting that, like James was saying, whenever you hit the edge of one radio station's signal range and you're coming into another one and they're like 0.2 away on the FM dial. And so you're picking up the rest of this, you know, classic rock song coming Mm -hmm. from the one that you were listening to and you're starting to get the fire and brimstone evangelical message from the new station that you're driving into. And depending on, you know, which side of that tree you're passing it's going to vary the volume of which station comes in more. I love that. I love that idea. And this is what we do. So a big thing that I would recommend doing when you're world building as a collaborator, as a writer, as a GM, isn't as a player, whatever, doesn't matter. Listen to what people are building and find what is interesting to you about it, right? So what I'm going to pick up on, where I'm going to grab this ball and run with it, I love the idea that all of a sudden this alien signal is swallowing imperial signals. So my question to you would be what happens when the outskirt societies no longer get imperial signals? What gets lost? And then this is where we can take it and make it personal. How does it affect people on an individual level when the static becomes so great that you can no longer hear your solar empire? Well, to me, what would end up happening is these frontier settlements, they're just going to drop off communications. They're, mm. The interior is going to lose communication entirely with the peripheral. Mm. And so you end up in a situation where the inner system is going to start sending people out towards there because all of these settlements have started going dark and they have no idea what it is. So. Yes, we have hit first contact, Mm -hmm. but the inner system doesn't know because the settlements that are making contact literally can't communicate that back. Yeah, I like that. So like all of their shipping, all of their accounts, you know, kind of like when your Wi-Fi goes out in your store and you can't make your payments. So all the payments stop coming in, all the shipments stop going out, you know, all the logistics get completely disrupted. Mm hmm. And let's take that a step further. Let's zoom out a little bit. Let's take it to a uh, a national level, right? On the scale that we're working with. How does the empire respond to this? At best, right? Oh, it's technology being blinked out. At worst, to them, it's civil war or it's an yeah. act of yes. war. It's so, open rebellion. Ooh. Exactly, right. So now you have a fleet of imperial ships coming to check on what's happened because they think the worst. They think that the worst has happened that they've deliberately cut off communication. So now what happens when what may or may not be peaceful aliens suddenly come up against an armada or a relatively small armada of ships? Now you have factions involved. You have the third part. You have the aliens, you have the Imperials, and you have the people who are going to stuck in the middle and bam, you have a grand narrative that you're willing to talk about. And all of a sudden, right? That's where we start our session. 
You have your group of people. Ask them, well, where do you fall? Are you with the Imperials? Are you on an Imperial ship coming in? Or are you a native who is caught in the middle of all this? What are you more interested in running? Right. And that scenario of first contact in that, oh, the Imperial Armada is coming. Bam. You've got so many hooks and opportunities to start a scene in either one of those things. You can honestly, you could probably do this as two separate startups, right? Have a one shot where you are Imperial cruiser people coming in and, oh, we've lost contact. we got to make sure that we put down these rebels. And then the literal next episode, right? The next session that you run, you're running it from the perspective of people who are on this outpost colony. Unaware, unaware that the Armada is coming, right? And now you have this beautiful, amazing, interesting story. And then when the Armada comes down, you ask your players, okay, which character do you want to play? And you organically build your group and you organically build the story that way, right? Bam. There you go. You got it. You know, whenever you started describing that until you got to the, okay, pick your character, I would have done it the other way around. I would have started on the settlement making the first contact. Mm -hmm. And then so that that first character knows what's happening. They know Mm -hmm. why they've gone radio silent and then make them make the character on the cruiser in the Armada coming in blind because Mm -hmm. the player knows, but their character doesn't. Well, here's why I would do it the way that I did it. Let me justify myself just a little bit here, Ian. When you start with the Armada, when you start with the people who have less information, you get to have their zeal. You get to have, like, there's no meta knowledge of what's happening, right? Right. right. You get the full force of Imperial zeal and might, right? And you get to create an interesting kind of portrayal of those characters. So they're not just monsters who are coming in to shoot shit. No, no, no. You're creating them as humans or as, as people first. And then the reason that you switch is because it's a prequel where you unveil the mystery. Well, why did they go dark? Now you understand why. And then because you've humanized both sides, it makes it a lot more interesting to pick which one in this particular conflict you'd rather talk about or be or, or effectively right. be, right? That's right. why I would do it that way. But I totally understand why you'd want to, you could do it either way. And if you were not going to offer the choice between which side you wanted to go, the way that I just stated it would be the way I would go. But because Absolutely. you because you added that caveat of, okay, which character do you want to play? Right then I think that your method works much better. Right. And that really is dependent on what kind of flavor of game you're interested in talking about. Because if you start with no choice and you do it the way that Ian would do it, it would become very easy to turn those Imperial Armada folks into cartoonish villains or bumbling buffoons who just don't know what they're talking about, right? Right. So, and mind you, that's a perfectly valid game to have. If is your empire bumbling and full of incompetent, like bloodthirsty, horrible bureaucrats? Yeah, that's an awesome game that I'd want to explore as well. But if you're more interested in like, oh, I want more nuance and more deep role play, you could do it either way, you know. But I, I would whatever. suggest a curveball and a third zero session where you are a species, you've picked up some sort of weird resonance or disruption with your signal. And as you go to Mm. figure out what the cause is, you come across a government putting down some sort of civil war. 
And so now you're Ooh, seeing the start of the yeah. So you've been, yeah, you're now coming at it from the alien side where you've been following this signal for so long and all of a sudden you come to it and it is a barbarous act of war, right? Yeah. And And it's not even a civil war. It's like kind of your fault. Yeah. That's really interesting. Not even necessarily a barbarous act of war because what we are describing is a military response Mm -hmm. to a peripheral settlement going dark. Yeah. On the assumption that they have entered into open rebellion. This could be just a very blatant one-sided slaughter. And so now this alien race has to decide, okay, are we just going to stand back and let them do their thing and not interfere? Or are we going to do the morally correct thing and defend the defenseless? Right. I want to pause right here, right now. Look at the scenario that we have created in what, like a f- 30 minutes to an hour Yeah, just yeah. by talking about it and all of the implications, all of the information, all of this, like, oh my God, there's so much to explore here. And that is where the narrative picks up. Your job at that point is to explore the narrative, is to make interesting things happen so people are engaged and want to follow what happens next. And we've done that. And you're engaged and you're engaged and I'm engaged. And bam, we're like, I want to know what happens next. And it's just that simple, guys. I mean, that's all we need to get us started. If we want to go back and be like, well, how do the cybernetics work? What do the cybernetics look like? What do they do? Then we can start to answer those questions. Then when we're on the ground, when we're in our character's shoes, that's when we start to answer those questions. And that's when we get to explore all of those themes that you're interested in. And we managed to do all of that with four tenets and a theme. Yep. Yeah. And also a die roll, but like, whatever, that's, you know, that's fine. (laughs) You know? Yeah. So that's how world building works, right? You can do what we did with any idea, with any concept, with any genre, with any whatever you want. If you want to run a superhero game, you can do the exact same thing that we did, right? You got to be curious. You have to listen to people and find the thing that you're interested in and then expand upon it. Easy, right? Yeah, yeah. no, that sounds great. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I love these scenarios with you. I love these sessions with you because now I'm excited. I want to sit down and play this game. <laughs> yes. So this is what we do regularly over on my podcast, right? Where we will get a prompt from a listener and we will sit down and we will approach the prompt with tenets. Now, the fun thing is we approach it having no idea what our co-hosts will say. And so where the narrative comes from is making sure that all of our tenets work, all of our tenets fit together and answering the questions that might be unanswered, right? And That's the beauty of it. You can go listen to our podcast. You can hear what we did over and over again. And we got some really great ones. Games that like on a weekly basis, I'm like, damn, I want to play in this game. (laughs) Ian, like we, we did one with Ian recently where we had like 1920s magic plus cryptids plus like airships. And you can find what's interesting no matter what the prompt is. Right. Yeah. And I would say that we did. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. And if that episode has come out by the time this episode comes out, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. <laughs> I believe that it should have already. Excellent. I think so. Hold on. Quick Google search. Yeah. Okay. We're good. Yeah. It's in there. It actually came out a couple weeks ago, but yes. 
Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, but this is what I'm talking about. World building is so much fucking fun. It Do really it with is. your friends. Have fun with it. And this is how you make really great games. You listen to people, you find what you're interested in, or glom onto it, and you world build together. You world build with us, right? That's why I call it that. It's about building collaboratively, and god damn it, that's what we do, and it's great. That's what you should be doing too. Everyone, not just James and Ian. Yeah, they're going to do that too, obviously, but you guys listening to this podcast, you should do that too. Do it now. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. I'm right here. <laughs> Build me. That's, that is, yeah, I'm not going, okay, I'm not going any further than that. That's, that's uh, you, you, oh, no. you guys are having so much fun doing Arnold impersonations. I'm going to let you have your fun. And uh... Okay, hold on. Now, now you have to join the call. You have to, Ian, you have to do an Arnold impression for us. Just one. You just, just all line. That's fine. Oh, um, here, I'm trying to. Do a word. Say Crom like like he does in Conan the Barbarian, and then that'll be good it's enough. It's been so that's long since I've seen Conan the Barbarian, but it's not a Duma. Yes. There you go. Yeah, see? Yeah, see? yeah there you go. I'm oh, man. Okay, we, we've officially gone off the rails now. I yeah, love absolutely. it. Absolutely. Chaos so, Rob, thank you very much for joining us on this yes, episode of you. Undercommon Taste. We've had a blast. Hopefully next time we will actually be able to get Courtney and or Daniel on with you. Uh, I know that scheduling did not allow for that this time. Uh, oh yeah, I mean that that's that's fine. Danny, well, D Daniel will say scheduling, and then he'll attribute it to his blood feud with you. But uh, oh yeah, yeah. hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we'll, we'll get that. some more people. Yeah, exactly. There's like an unfriendly rivalry happening between you guys. And, like, that's <laughs> <fine>. yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but honestly, it was an absolute blast to be on here. It was really great to chat with y'all and. We even did a little mini world building gym, which I thought was really fun. So yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Yes, thank you again for coming on. And could you go ahead and uh, plug your socials and stuff one more time? Oh man, I feel like I've shilled enough here, but yeah, go to worldbuildwithus.com or just type in world build with us in the YouTube, in the Googles, wherever you want to go. And I'm sure that you'll be able to find us somewhere. World Build With Us is not a common search term, turns out. So you just find us there. We're on Patreon. We're on Twitter. Although, why? Uh, we're, <laughs> we have our own Discord. We have our YouTube channel. All that good stuff. Just go search for our name. And we'll find us eventually. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I think it's just inertia that has kept us on Twitter. Probably. The, the fact that we can't reach the critical mass to actually delete our accounts. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Yeah. Although it's getting closer every day where I'm just like, I'm going to click that delete button or just like stop posting on there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's a hell of a website and uh, a website of hell. Yeah, so, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. Well, uh, gentlemen, again, thank you so much for having me. Uh, lovely being here. Yes, thank you again. And thank you everyone for listening today. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email under common taste at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, and Mastodon at Undercommon Taste. We are still on the burning dumpster fire of Twitter as well at UCT Homebrew if you wanted to send us a direct message through there. 
Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. That's where our write-ups go. We have an itch store, undercommontaste.itch.io, where you can find our liminal horror adventure beneath the lake or my solo RPG forever home. Finally, we are on Discord as well. You can find a link to our Discord in the show notes, and we would love for you to come and chat with us. If you want to hear our other episodes with Rob or any of the other adventures we've taken, you can find our podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podbean. As always, please give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what kind of content you want to hear more of. Once more, thank you, Rob, for joining us. Stay safe, everyone, and we will see you in two weeks. Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Under Common Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash davidsutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe. And we'll see you then.